Yesterday was the deadline for federal agencies to send the Office of Management and Budget a list of the federal advisory committees they're proposing to do away with, along with justifications for any of the FACA committees they think are still justified. The mandate to reduce the number of committees came in an executive order President Trump signed earlier this year. Each agency is supposed to eliminate one-third of the advisory panels that aren't required by statute. The EO also sets a target of no more than 350 discretionary committees across the government. Sean Moulton is a senior policy analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. He says the action amounts to closing agencies' doors to government advice and a big step backward from the transparency the Federal Advisory Committee Act added to agency decision-making processes back in 1972. For years, since the beginning of our government, really, uh, they've needed to turn to outside experts. I mean, certainly we have a lot of knowledgeable people in our government, but they don't have all the answers. And so this idea that they get input from experts on the outside has been with us for a long time. But um, back in the 1970s, people started to realize they, they didn't like the process all the time. They couldn't get access to the meetings. They didn't know who they were getting advice from. Uh, it, it seemed very closed, very uh, untrustworthy. And I mean, the 70s were a time for uh, people coming to the realization that they uh, they didn't fully trust the government. And they wanted ways to verify uh, what it was that was being done uh, with their money and, and in their name. So Congress responded to that, and they passed the Federal Advisory Committee Act. And it really what it basically just did was said, look, we're going to have advisory committees. We, we have had them. We're going to keep having them. But we're just going to normalize it. We're going to come up with a procedure by which uh, everything's open you know who's on the committee, you know when the meetings are, you can look at minutes from the previous meetings, you know what the mission is of that committee. Uh, and so if you at any point want to participate, you can. You can go to the meetings, you can, you can have an opportunity to say something, uh, submit testimony or, or, or information of your own, or complain that the committee isn't doing what it's supposed to be doing or is going beyond what it's supposed to be doing. Um, these would be you know, ways that you could start to then engage. Right. And so, you know, pushing toward 50 years later, this this EO that we're talking about is, is titled Evaluating and Improving the Utility of Federal Advisory Committees. As you say, CRS estimates there are about a thousand of these boards and commissions across the government. And, and there's got to be some number of those that have outlived their usefulness or their original purpose or, or don't even don't even meet anymore. So fundamentally, you know, what's wrong with doing a bit of a scrub and clearing the decks and, and making sure that the ones we have are actually relevant to some agency function? Well, I mean, I'm not entirely sure that we have all that many that are uh, unnecessary. Probably the, the part that I think is uh, the most possible is that we, we either have some that are required by statute that just really aren't necessary anymore. The agencies don't have the authority to get rid of them. They're required by statute. And so uh, we may have some of those sitting around, um, but this EO isn't going to get rid of them because it, the EO can't override a statute. Now, the ones that this one is going after are ones that are either under, under agency authority or that are authorized by statute, but they, they're required. Basically, the Congress at one point in law said, look, you, you probably should do this, and we give you permission to, but it was up to the agency to open and run it. And the reality is agencies try very hard to decide whether or not um, they should be running a, a, a FACA. If they're not being required, 
uh, if someone's not forcing them to and they and they aren't needed in some way, then these agencies usually shut them down because it takes a lot of time, resources, and a fair amount of money. Yeah, what I mean, what is that resourcing like? Because that's one of my questions here. It doesn't seem like it, it could be an enormous amount of money because in my experience, these committees are not usually meeting at the Ritz-Carlton. They tend to be in agency basement conference rooms. So, I mean, is it mainly <laughs> travel expenses? I mean, we're, these are not large sums of money, I don't imagine. No, no. I mean, different different committees, uh, you know, have different resource demands uh, and financial demands. Bigger committees, obviously, larger amounts of money. Um, the, the last number I've seen um, put the 1,000 committees uh, costing around 300 and 50, 360 million. A lot of that's travel. They get experts from all over the country and, and often will help to have them fly in and stay so that they come either to uh, D.C. or sometimes the committees travel if there's something on, say, interior and they're talking about public lands. They'll go someplace so that they can also get access to the public who wants to attend those meetings. And so if you're talking about a pipeline that might go through public lands in Montana, you're probably going to hold a hearing in Montana. So it is. It's mostly travel. It's staffing. Um, you know, there's just some regular stuff. Uh, having been on a FACA committee, I can tell you that, yes, there are no, uh, no junkets to Hawaii mm -hmm. or the Caribbean islands or anything like that that are happening. So we're recording this on August 1st, which also happens to be the deadline when agencies were supposed to submit to OMB their their recommendations for which FACA committees they wanted to keep and which ones they wanted to get rid of. Have we started to see the results of that process at all or get any sense of, of how many and what types of committees are, are kind of getting teed up for termination? I've not. Uh, I'm, I'm anxious to see what uh, agencies are going to say. Uh, there were some loopholes in there. Um, agencies that only had a few FACA committees were exempt. Agencies that wanted to could re could uh, request a waiver so that they didn't meet this uh, deadline of, of getting rid of uh, all these committees. And so I'm curious to see which agencies will, uh, you know, come up with a plan to um, cut the number um, as requested and how many will try and maybe cut a few and then say, we'd like a waiver for the rest. Yeah. And, and how many actually get cut is kind of important here under the EO because it sets a government wide cap of 350. And if agencies don't meet that, meet that it's in a sense, it, it's a de facto moratorium on any new FACAs because they can't create any more if, if the government as a whole doesn't get beneath that 350 threshold. Well, and again, it's, it would not affect statutorily required FACA. Right. They don't they don't land in this uh, this area. So, you know, moving forward, if I were a member of Congress and I knew that this EO was out there uh, and we were talking about uh, you know the possibility of a new FACA committee, a new advisory committee, or we were talking with an agency and they were saying FACA commi committee could be good, but we don't we don't have the room to add another FACA committee. Congress adds it to a piece of legislation requiring it, and it gets done. And so this is a, a definitely handcuffing the agencies from doing more on their own, but it doesn't stop Congress from uh, keep pushing up the number of FACA committees that we, that we have. So even as someone who is, in general, a fan of FACA committees, I think you would say that they're not perfect in the way that they're operationalized today. If you were sitting down to write 
an EO instead of this one, what what would you change? I, you know, I mean, I, I do think this EO is just shooting for the wrong target. Um, it's it's not about how many FACA committees we have, because I don't think they're necessarily wasting money or, you know, a big drain on, on agencies' actions. Uh, they're not delaying things. I think uh, the real problem with FACAs are the kind of advice that agencies are getting and, and whether or not they're really getting that diversity of viewpoints that you would want to get from this kind of process. I think too many of these uh, committees are heavily weighted towards the private sector, companies, uh, industry associations. Um, and, and under this administration, unfortunately, that has increased. They, they did uh, a while back, they did uh, something in EPA where they said, if you're a scientist, and you get any EPA money, any grant money, you can't be on any of our advisory committees, even if it's not an advisory committee advising your grant. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, that's a conflict of interest. But to say that, well, if, if you're smart enough that we want you to do research for us, we don't want you to give us advice either. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense. And so we lost a number of academics and scientists in the EPA that were on advisory committees. And so I think we need to go in the opposite direction. I, need, I think we need more diversity of opinion. We need to get more uh, public interest, more scientists, more academics, researchers to be on these committees uh, and, and in giving their input and trying to find that common ground between the diversity of opinions. Yeah, I, a little bit of more, more transparency also seems doable in, in the year 2019. I mean, beyond publishing notices and agendas in the Federal Register, I don't think there's a lot of these groups that do things like webcasting their meetings or, you know, at a minimum, posting an audio recording on a website somewhere. Agreed. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, I know a lot of agencies will complain about the transparency requirements uh, that, that they have to have, and but I do think there are ways... To, to even do, to do even more transparency, to, but to make it easier on the agencies, uh, the webcasting and recording of all meetings seems like an easy one. Uh, if you're if you're doing minutes on a meeting, it, it seems like, well, you can just do a recording, and then boom, the recording is it can be up there. It's not even you know a summary of what got said. You can you can listen to exactly what got said. I also think. One of my frustrations, again, having been on a FACA committee, is that sometimes you do all this work and then the agencies don't respond. Right. So, you, so you give them this advice and, and it just seems to land in a black hole. Uh, you don't get a, an explanation. And sometimes, you know, I'm sure some of our recommendations that, that we gave, maybe they were too expensive or there were legal reasons why they couldn't be done exactly that way. But the FACA committee itself never really hears back. It's not a conversation like it should be. Because uh, then if we had heard that, you know, the next session or next meetings, we might have been able to say, oh, we can change that. Or it, maybe there's a way we can adapt our recommendation and make it less expensive. Um, so we still move towards that goal, but not spend so much money. And instead, sometimes the FACA process feels very much like your you know, leaving a voicemail for someone who does not call you back. (laughs) Sean Moulton is a senior policy analyst at the Project on Government Oversight. We'll post a link to the op-ed he wrote on this executive order at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive.